0: Good morning, I'm Mike McNichols, and it's, uh, it's my privilege to be with you this morning. Todd has had a very busy week, and I didn't think he was gonna be here. I said, I'm sorry that you're here, because when you're here, I feel like I have to be accountable <laughs> for what I say. So we'll just deal with that. You know, it, it's really interesting to consider the language that we use when it comes to faith in general, Christian faith in particular. For many years I have heard people say things like, I've made a decision for Christ. I have decided to follow Jesus. And once made, having made that decision, we accept Jesus into our lives. We've heard this kind of language, I, I've used that kind of language myself, and it's probably language that makes sense in a culture like ours, where we are accustomed to choosing one thing over another based on that thing's merits, based on our preferences and our desires, uh, we weigh the whether something is good, whether something is bad, whether something is desirable, and we make our decision, and in the end, having done so, we remain in control of everything. And uh, we sometimes speak of faith in our culture as though faith is really nothing more than, than a set of written facts that I acknowledge, affirm, and embrace into my own life. I've decided to believe these things, and having done so, I can now get on with my somewhat controlled life. But when we look at the biblical narrative, there really seems to be something else that's going on, uh, especially for the disciples of Jesus. In the very beginning of their relationship with him, they don't decide for him, he decides for them. He he comes out of a lengthy time of prayer and he begins to to select them and call them to follow him. Uh, At one point in the gospels we hear him say, you did not choose me but I chose you. Uh, So there is a deciding but it's on the part of Jesus rather than on their part and once they are chosen they they enter into a new series of movements within their lives where they transition from an old life into a new life, following Jesus into some fairly remarkable and even at sometimes dangerous places. And now certainly there would have been some deciding along their way. Uh, Having been summoned, they could decide not to follow. Some had certainly made that choice. But once they did respond to his invitation, the movement was constant for them. And in our text this morning, we see this movement starting up in a a fresh way when Jesus appears to his friends uh, after he's been raised from the dead, after the resurrection. And if we move back, we see that during the crucifixion time, that horrible scene, uh, the disciples' movement seemed to stop right at that point. And they disappeared from the scene and hid themselves. And we find in the text this morning, they're, they're locked away in this room, uh, concerned about the backlash that might come their way from the religious leaders. And when Jesus appears to them, he then initiates three movements that I see in this text this morning. Not only three movements for them, but three movements for us, and perhaps the church at large as well. And the first movement is the movement from fear to peace. Now the disciples had reasons to be afraid. The Jewish leaders had been successful in what they had done. They arrested Jesus, he was falsely accused. They conspired with the Romans to execute him. They pulled it off. They, they won the day, in a sense. And so it was reasonable for the disciples to fear that they were also on the hit list. Why not? They were, they were complicit with Jesus. And they had not only lost their beloved leader and friend, but they were also at risk of suffering the exact same fate that Jesus had suffered. And so now they found themselves bound up with the fear that something terrible was about to happen to them. And I think most of us can relate to that kind of fear, really. Many people live in the anticipation that something clearly disastrous is about to come somewhere along the way. Uh, now, some of that thinking has a basis in reality. I mean, the disciples had a reason to be fearful. Uh, if you live in the Gulf Coast and the weather report says there's a hurricane coming on Tuesday, you might feel a little fearful, but you have a reason to feel fearful, and you've just got some stuff to do to get ready for this storm that's going to come your way. So we understand that part, but there is also that kind of thinking, a process that psychologists call catastrophic thinking that's based in a brand of fear that has no anchor in reality at all. And so people can get stuck in, in the what-ifs of their worst fears and end up living in a future that never actually unfolds for them. You know, like when the boss walks by your door and you look up and you go, gosh, boss didn't smile at me when he walked by my door, I wonder if I did something wrong and if I did something wrong, maybe I'm gonna lose my job and if I lose my job at my age, how will I find another job and if I can't find another job, I'll have to go on welfare and then I'll starve to death and my children will be on, you know, you get it, right? Um, That's catastrophic thinking, it doesn't have a basis in reality, But, but sometimes it is. But fear, no matter what the source, is formative. Fear can form us. When people live in fear, their lives become formed by the constant anticipation of disaster, and so living in the fear of a painful future also extracts us from any level of attentiveness to the present where God is with us. God is not with us in some fantasized future. God is with us in the present. God is with us now. Well, Jesus didn't leave his friends there, did he? He didn't leave his friends to languish in a place of fear, the fear of a future that might unfold. He, he, came into, he came to them in the present, showing them the very tangible real life evidence of his crucifixion. In other words, it's really me and I'm really here. Here's, here's the marks of the crucifixion on my body. And when he appeared, twice he said to his friends, peace be with you. It's a greeting we exchange here at Holy Trinity. And certainly that was a common greeting in the day but when he spoke those words, he really spoke them into the now of the disciples' lives. Peace be with you. He didn't make it an anticipated future statement. Peace come to you later. You'll find peace on Wednesday. Uh, hang around, maybe peace will show up. Uh, it's peace be with you, right now. And he spoke to peace to them in that moment. And, and while they may have had reasons for their fears, Jesus stepped right into the middle of those fears And he broke them with his presence and with that proclamation of peace. With that proclamation, fear began to break. So see, his words were really more than just a greeting. They were words of power that began to reshape the disciples' lives, moving them from fear to a place of peace. And that's the first movement. The second movement is from hiddenness to sending. See, the disciples' fear had now driven them into hiding. They were huddled up in this locked room. They feared the retaliation of the Jewish leaders. It may very well be that they were trying to figure out how to get out of town. You know, once it's dark, maybe we can get out of here, fly under the radar of our enemies. But for the time being, they couldn't do that. They just remained in hiding with the door locked. That's what fear does to people. Once afraid, we hide so that the anticipated result of our fear won't happen to us. The overwhelming amount of information that we get about fearful things on a daily basis, tons of it. We're concerned about potential terrorist attacks, impending wars, the next financial collapse, another global disaster of some kind. And when we hear all these things, it makes us want to go find that, you know, that cabin off in the woods in Montana where we will be safe from all harm, only to learn that they have grizzly bears up there in Montana, uh, forest fires and that kind of thing. We can easily hide, but mostly we do it in our minds. We hide away within our own hearts and our minds. We shut ourselves off from others so that whatever pain we've experienced in the past will not come and revisit us in the future. Well, in a way, Jesus completely violated the disciples' hiddenness by just showing up in the first place. It's like... Ali oli oxen free, you know, hide and seek is over folks, here I am, I know where you are. Uh, they're locked up but Jesus appeared to them anyway and, and even though his mode of arrival was somewhat unusual, just through the door, uh, his revealing of the wounds from the cross was evidence that he was really there, truly was among them. So by merely arriving on the scene, he completely destroyed their sense of hiddenness. They were found out. And on top of that, rather than just telling them to stop doing what they were doing, you know, quit locking the doors, quit hiding out. Instead of that, he did something that would set their lives on an entirely new course. He breathed on them. And he claimed that they had just received the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then he said that they were now, as a result of that, being sent in a way that mirrored the way that he had been sent by God the Father. Now, there was, of course, a delay in all this, which, which challenges some of our you know, thinking about how the Holy Spirit works with immediacy. Uh, it Certainly didn't work that way in this text. Nothing happened at the moment, as far as we know. At least John doesn't, doesn't tip his hand that anything happened at that moment. Uh, e- even though he commissions them to be sent, the narrative doesn't really tell us what that's going to look like. Perhaps John decided that Luke had already done a good job of writing the book of Acts and he didn't need to add anything to it. I, I don't know. But there is a delay. And I have to confess, I take a little comfort in this delay. Uh, See, I would like to believe that everything that brings life to me is gonna happen on the spot, just like that, with great immediacy. But it doesn't. And when the delay is there, it doesn't mean that God's absent from the process. The things of God come to us, but they come to us typically as hope and promise, both of which are based in a future that God intends. And unlike the kind of, of rather dismal, fantastical sort of futures that we can develop in our own minds, the future that God intends will unfold in God's time as he moves us, as he did his, with his first disciples, from a place of hiddenness to a place of sending. That's the second movement. And the third and final movement is from receiving to forgiving. Jesus' arrest and crucifixion had revealed a lot about his friend's character. A lot of weak spots, a lot of, a lot of dark spots. There was cowardice, there was betrayal, there was fear, there was panic, there was all of the things that we read in the story. And the disciples now carried all of that baggage with them into that locked, hidden room. And when Jesus appeared to them, clearly they rejoiced, but I, I suspect that there was something bubbling up behind all that. And I'm reading into the text here, I, I recognize. My sense is that what may have been behind all of that rejoicing is the hope that Jesus would kind of take, you know, the etch-a-sketch of their lives and shake it really good so that it erased all the things that had just happened, that somehow Jesus would say, it's okay, everything's gonna be all right. And that's our hope, isn't it? Really pretty much on a daily basis, that those things in our past that keep rising up, reminding us of our failure, reminding us of our sin, that maybe, just maybe, they would truly be erased by the forgiveness of God, and I think many of us have a very difficult time coming to grips with this that that God's forgiveness is a reality. In fact, it's a reality that comes to us before we even ask. Jesus revealed that kind of gracious sense of forgiveness when he was dying on the cross and he said, "Father, forgive them, his killers, because they don't know what they're doing." And I'm thinking that when Jesus asks his heavenly Father for someone to be forgiven, it has some kind of effect whether they want it to be there or not. The Apostle Paul picks up on this when he says that, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Well, Jesus does something here that's connected to his words of sending. He empowers his disciples to then forgive others. But the words that he uses can sometimes challenge our thinking and their implications. Uh, the, the way our text was worded this morning from the version that we use here Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins, then they are withheld. Uh, Now, in the New Revised Standard Version, which is the one I typically use, Jesus says, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained, which is even more problematic. And when you look at the various English translations, you realize people are seeing this from a lot of different angles, what that last sentence means that Jesus is bringing up. And some commentators will interpret those words to mean that, that it's about the church. Church has the authority to forgive sins, the church has the authority to to identify sins that are repeated and unrepented of and so on, and they can make these distinctions that the church has authority for that. And, And certainly, Jesus is indeed commissioning his disciples to be agents of forgiveness, and that commissioning, we can assume, extends out to the life of the church. But, in the story we heard this morning, Jesus isn't speaking so much institutionally as he is to a group of scared followers who are locked up in a room. And that we see Jesus now speaking words and they're words to his friends. And the words come right on the heels of having received his breath of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we're probably all fairly comfortable with the first part of that declaration. You know, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. You know, we, we, I think we get that. That, that it's part of, a significant part of our vocation as Christians to be agents of forgiveness, to be a forgiving people. Uh, that we stand in the authority that, that Jesus gives us to be agents of forgiveness. I, I think most of us get that. But it's the second part that is a little bit challenging for us, uh, what does it mean to withhold that? Is there an authority to withhold? Or even worse, what does it mean to retain sins? I mean, is sin retention like water retention? You know, if you do it, you just like gain weight? Uh, I mean, it's really kind of a cryptic statement. But there are a number of ways that we can look at those words. And I I think it probably makes sense that there are indeed destructive, sinful, and harmful behaviors that people just repeatedly engage in, making forgiveness really just ineffective for them. Uh, And so in a sense, we could say such sins are, are retained, they're withheld. Uh, But it may be that the disciples are really being just empowered to identify sins when they see them. Maybe it's just a statement of reality. Um, But it also might be a caution. If you forgive them, they're forgiven. If you retain them, if you withhold them, then sin continues to take center stage in that person's life and remains unforgiven. So it may be a warning. But you know, when when we start talking about forgiveness, even in the abstract sense, it pushes a lot of personal buttons for us. It's just inevitable. Uh, it pushes buttons not only in the life of the church at large but it pushes buttons, pushes buttons within our personal relationships. That word that is translated variously, various ways, withheld, uh, retained, the, the Greek word behind that really is very simply translated as hold. Uh, As Just as holding on to something. In the story in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus holds the hand of the young girl who has died to raise her up, he just holds her hand. It's the same word. It's a very simple word, to hold, if you hold those sins. We can hear Jesus' words certainly as as cautionary to his disciples as, as his agents, but we can hear it as cautionary within our own lives, perhaps even warning us about holding on to the sins of others, in effect making them our own rather than extending forgiveness. I have to confess, I know something about this and maybe you do too. It's probably a fair assumption on my part. I don't want to be standing up here alone with all this, you know. But I think it's more than just caving into someone else's temptation and then running amok with it. It's about orienting our lives around the pain and the offense that has been afflicted upon us by others. It's about holding these offenses closely to us, rehearsing them, replaying them, so that they remain with us all the time as living things. And we often cannot even bring ourselves to truly forgive these sins, because to do so would be to let go of something that has come to form us and become a part of our core identities. You know, this holding of sins can happen with individuals, it can happen with families, with churches, with tribes, even with nations. There are people groups all over the world that hold on to past offenses and orient their entire cultures around them for years or even centuries. And it's easy for us to do that as well. When we suffer betrayal or abandonment, injustice, even violence, we can hold those sins and we can allow ourselves to be formed by their ongoing power. About 30 years ago, I was, um, 30 years ago, I was uh, on staff at a small church. I I ran their school that they had, and uh, it was a great opportunity. I had a wonderful time doing it, but uh, there was increasing tension within our church. Um, There was pastoral issues, and I found myself running head-to-head with our senior pastor. There was a lot of problems that were emerging in the life of the church, and as as wonderful as I thought, that as, as much as I enjoyed the work that I was doing and felt it was life-giving and, and helpful, I realized that, that I could no longer remain. I had to leave. And uh, there were some t- integrity issues at stake and it was time to go. And it was a very painful leaving because this is the church I'd grown up in. It was a church where I, where I came to know Jesus. It was a church where I was married my children were dedicated. There were deep roots within that little fellowship. And I had to leave. And it was like it was like turning in your, getting kicked out of school and turning in your dorm key. Um, it was, a, it was an incredibly painful experience. And uh, stories were spun about me, about my departure that were untrue, and I just had to live with that. And uh, about a year later, the church sort of caught on. They fired the pastor, and he disappeared. He was an older man, about my father's age. Moved away, moved up to another state, and uh, lost track of him. Uh, but the pain really did remain there. I, I felt like I had worked through it, even, even extended forgiveness, but man, Someone would say, so you used to be a school principal, tell me about that. So I'd start to tell it, and the anger bubble up a year later, five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later. It just wouldn't go away. It wasn't with me all the time, but every time the topic came up, it would flare. And I thought, I don't know how to get rid of this thing. And almost 20 years later, I came home from my office. I was a pastor at the time, and my wife said, someone's been calling for you, won't leave a message, said so a call back later. And so soon the phone rang and uh, I answered it and as soon as I heard the voice, I knew it was that man, that pastor. Hadn't heard his voice for almost 20 years. Knew it just like that. And uh, I think he thought I was gonna hang up on him because before I could say anything other than hello, uh, he says, I'm so sorry. So sorry for my part in all the things that happened. And immediately we moved into a reconciling, forgiving engagement with each other after 20 years. And where he had, in effect, cursed me on my way out, he began to pour blessing. Uh, He had discovered email, the magic of email, and he started emailing me on a regular basis, words of blessing in my church. Uh, One one Sunday uh, afternoon, I got home from a meeting that had been incredibly difficult uh, in our church, and uh, I pulled up my emails, and he had sent me one the night before, and he said, you know, I felt like the Holy Spirit told me to really pray for you for something tomorrow. And so I just asked that God would bless you. That's where where that relationship went. And while immediacy doesn't always come, there was an immediate change at that moment for me. That where this person had been a person that I kept at a distance, that I hid my heart from, suddenly my heart had to open and something changed. And I found that later when people say, so tell me about that time when you ran that school and I begin to tell the story and the anger didn't come back. and never did because the healing came through that act of forgiveness where sins were no longer held. They were no longer owned, but they were released and they were forgiven. Just as Jesus breathed upon his disciples, he has breathed upon us. He's called us as his friends to be his people and to be that people for the sake of the world, for the sake of others that we are to participate in the reality of God's forgiveness and his love for the world. And he has indeed called us, first of all, to be receivers of that, but not as an end in itself. He's called us to be receivers in order that we might be sent. So today we see Jesus moving his friends from fear to peace, from hiddenness to sending, and from receiving to forgiving. And he calls us to those movements as well today. And and in closing, I I want to encourage you that as we come to the table today, we come to that table not as a reward, but we come as a response to an invitation. That Jesus summons us to that table that we would be his people, that we would be remembered in him, and that he is fully present to us at this time and at this table, just as he was present to his friends in the story we heard this morning. And, and if you are here today, and for you, fear and hiddenness and, and a deep need to receive something that never seems to come your way is something that rises up to the surface of your consciousness, that after, after our service is over, I encourage you to go in the back. There'll be people who will pray for you, that, that the breath of Jesus would come in a fresh way into your life and that you may be released into what God has for you. Amen.